All right, mercy. So, so exciting to be here. So delighted to be here. And uh, we're going to begin. I'm going to jump in because uh, this is going to be long in a good way, this message. But um, we are launching a series this today called One Story. Over the next eight weeks, we're going to be answering the question, tackling the question of how the Bible, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, points us to one person, one being, Jesus. And I'm so thrilled to do this. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39 through 40, he says this, you, and he's talking to Pharisees, search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. I got this. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have a life. Now, this is not just a danger that those leaders and those teachers and authorities had back then. This is a danger that we all have when we read the Bible, is that we could read it and miss what it's about. You know, you could read the Old Testament for wisdom and great stories and how you should improve your life. And I'll, I'll be honest, I think if you read the Bible, there's so much wisdom there. Your marriage, business, and work relationships will get better. But that's not what the Bible is about. And it is not, or sometimes we read the Bible and we think of it and think, yeah, it's such a complicated story and there's weird names and big names and I get lost in it. And so my prayer and my hope and I'm, my excitement is that we will help you and help myself and help our church see the beautiful picture of God's redemption, redemption, redemptive plan in the story of Jesus. So I'm going to show you real quick. This is how... Old Testament, New Testament looks. This is, these, this is 66 books in the Bible. We're going to take eight weeks, and we're going to group the books by the kind of grouping they go by. And we're, I'm going to give you one key word that's going to point us to Jesus, one key word that's going to give us, that we're going to hear and learn about as it relates to Jesus. So today, we are going to learn about the first five books of Old Testament. Don't be afraid to pronounce them. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is called the Torah. And today the question I want to answer is, how does the Torah point us to Jesus? And the word that I want you to see is the Torah and the law is foundation for Christ. Foundation. That's the word I want you to live with, think about, chew on, remember for the rest of your life. The Torah provides foundation for Christ this is the passage we're going to land in and talk about today a lot. And, this is, and here's what Abraham or Moses writes about Abraham. Now, before chapter 12 of Genesis, we have chapters 1 and 2, creation. Chapters 3 through 11, the problem. The problem is what? Sin. Lots of wickedness. People are killing one another, nations are raging against one another, people don't have a relationship with God anymore, creation has lost that relationship with God. And so we have wickedness, and in chapter 12, God is going to begin a story of redemption. And he begins by choosing and electing a man named Abram. Right now he's Abram, he's going to be Abraham soon. Here's what God says, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country Excuse me. Go from your country, 
your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and will, I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much that you are the great shepherd of your church. Lord, I pray that today, whatever I omit, whatever I fail to explain, that in no way this church would suffer for your sake and for her sake. So Lord, would you be here? Would you call this word in power? Would it bless the saints? Would it point those who don't maybe believe in you to you, Jesus? In your name I pray, amen. So this is a covenant. Back, you know, a covenant is a agreement that, would be very popular in ancient times between nations, between people. And, what, and this was no, no, no unique thing about making a covenant. It would be like an agreement. The thing is, is that the d- religions around Israel also believed in covenants. But here's the thing about their gods. Their gods were invoked to seal a covenant, make an agreement, or... They called upon gods, their gods, to enforce a covenant. Like, hey, my neighbor is not keeping his end of the bargain. God, would you strike him dead? That kind of thing. The difference is is that Yahweh of Old Testament is not just there to invoke and enforce covenants. He steps into history to make a covenant. And he makes a covenant with Abraham. And this covenant would go across a few pages. And every time God makes a covenant, there's a couple of elements present. Number one, the covenants that God makes are always his initiative. He never responds or reacts to a covenant. He he just steps in and makes a covenant. And in that covenant, God would be making promises to the other party, humanity in this case. And then there would be a response from us. There was something that we would do. We would usually be required to respond with obedience and faith. And this right here is a covenant God made with Abraham. And God would multiple times in the story of Abraham give him sort of additional pieces to this covenant. But essentially it came down to this. God promised Abraham land, people, a relationship with him. I will be your God to your people. And the most importantly, a mission. And here's the mission in verse 3, that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Can I tell you? That's the whole point of the Bible right here. We got our destination. All the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. We have the problem of sin and wickedness running rampant, and God has this end goal in mind for creation to bring us blessing. Now, this blessing, this word is not the kind of blessing you say when somebody sneezes, God bless you, and bless you, bless you, bless you. This word is, encapsulates all of the benefits and the blessings that Jesus would win on the cross for, on our behalf. It is the undoing of the curse. This blessing is a huge deal, and this blessing is to Abraham, but it's really for the nations. It's really for everybody. God will get a little more precise in chapter 22, and he says, through your offspring, okay, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. There's a blessing for everyone. Now, Galatians 3 really tells us 
like, this is wild. Check this out. Galatians 3 says this. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. The gospel in the Old Testament. I thought that's a new thing. No, no, no. He preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. And this is the gospel. That in you shall all the nations be blessed. Church, we have our destination. God through Abraham, year 2000 B.C., promises, vows, by giving land, by establishing a people group, having a relationship, that everybody's going to get to share in this thing called blessing, forgiveness of sins, and we'll get to that in just a moment. So let me ask you this. How does God achieve this? Is it like this? God presses a button, and boom, things are done. Salvation achieved. Everything's good. Now, let's be honest. This is sometimes how we think God should do it, right? Next few chapters we should read, we should see how God actually just blessed all the nations. Why not? He just presses a button. Now, I'm not trying to be condescending, but sometimes we think like that. Now, there's something to applaud about that idea. We have a big view of God. He can do anything. He just does something. He snaps fingers. He has a magic wand, and all nations are blessed. And yet, what we do find is this much history. Why? Why doesn't God just... Press a button and just bless us all. The thing about God, a couple of reasons, but the thing about God is he's a through you God. He works through you. He achieves his purposes and his plans always through somebody. Now, in the beginning of creation, he just said, let there be light and boom, no materials, okay? God didn't have a blueprint. He's like, what am I going to do? Let me call some people to help me with this. No, he just spoke. But that was about it. Every time we read about God, he's doing something through somebody. Moses one time was talking to God, and God appears to him in the burning bush and says, Moses, I've seen the affliction of my people. I think Moses at this point, although he's freaked out because God's speaking to him, thinks, thank you, God. Thank you. He says, and I... God, have come down, now he's using a human language expression, to deliver my people. Moses says, thank you, God. You're going to deliver the people. The next thing God says is, come, I will send you to deliver. <laughs> and this is where Moses starts to back out. But this is how God works. He achieves his purposes through, through. He's always the God who works through somebody. Some of you maybe have been praying for your neighbors that they would know Jesus, and God says, yes, absolutely. So now, invite them over for dinner. Some of you have been praying for friends that they would know come to Jesus, and God now says, yes, let's do that. I want to do that through you. So go ahead and text them an invite to church. Some of you have been marked and maybe broken by orphans, and God's saying, okay, I'm sending you. God always works through somebody. So why do we have this history? of ups and downs because God is a through God. But the second reason why it's just not a button, but there's actually a story, it's because sin is a big deal. We sometimes forget that. You know, when, I, when we tend to forget that sin is a big deal, has gravity, there's injustice is a big deal, when we sin. You ever notice? 
or when other people sin against other people somewhere in a different part of the earth, the world. But when people sin against us, what do we remember? Oh, sin is a big deal. There needs to be some kind of justice. In fact, we want to do and exact some punishment on somebody who wronged us. It could be small, it could be long or big, but we want justice. In fact, I realized, and listen, I don't know married people if you know this, but sometimes in marriage, we don't even like when somebody apologizes quickly. You notice? Because if they apologize quickly, I lose my right <laughs> to vent. If they apologize too quickly and, I, and they hurt me, well, I want time in the shower to think through what I should have said, could have said, will say. God, give me the courage to say this. And I, but if they apologize, then I have to just kind of start dealing with, like, forgiving them. It's a funny story, but what it shows is that, no, 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 no. Sometimes we, we get it. Sometimes we forget it. But sin is a real problem affecting real people requiring a real solution that a real God is really determined to provide. Sin is a real problem, requiring a real solution, affecting real people that God is determined to provide. And there is no other way than the one that God has given us. Jesus once prayed and says, God, if there be a way around this, let it be. And essentially, God says, my son, there is no other way. There is no other way. The story that we have is the story we have because sin is what it is. And the grace of God, the abundant grace of God is what it is. The reason why we have this story of ups and downs and God leads us is because you throw in there the wickedness of sin. And then you throw in there God's grace and you get to God's providence and plan. Sin must be dealt with. But the third one, the reason why we have this long story of how God brings this about is because in the story, we learn about each other deeper. If you ever go on a date, it's been a long while for me and Albina. If you ever go on a date when you're just starting a relationship, it's absolutely fresh. You're crushing on one another. You're so excited. You go on a date, and you get the basic facts about this person really quick. You establish those quickly, right? Are they, uh, what, where they work? How old they are? How old are they? Are they a cat person or a duck person? Could be a red flag, by the way. Are they an android person? Uh, you got to be a cat person, by the way. I love cats. Uh, android, or is it, you know, you get those facts right away, but then you, you, you like them. So what do you do? You start asking them, tell me more about your story. Where did you grow up? How did you grow up? Why are you a cat person? What, what problems did you have? What victories did you have? What are your hopes? What are your dashed hopes? And I pray, see, see God tells us the story because he wants us to know him and fall, and I'm sorry to use that word, deeper in love with him. Are you trying to fall in love with Jesus without scriptures? without what he told us about him. So that's my long answer to answer the question of why do we have such a long story? Why couldn't just God snap fingers? So let's begin our story with this destination in mind. And the question I want to ask is, is God going to do this? Is God faithful? 
The second question I have for us to think about, because remember, we're learning about God. What does God do with all of our failures and mistakes? Because we're pretty messed up people. And if he's going to make covenants with us that we're expected to maintain and you know, maintain our end of the bargain, what does God do when we fail? Like, well, what's going to happen there? And the third question is, well, well, how exactly does God achieve this blessing, the undoing of the curse for all nations? And I want to tell you guys this story in big, big chunks, the five covenants that God makes five agreements, five job descriptions that God gives, and five things, five times God commits himself to something. And in this way, we're going to see just how beautifully the story God writes and executes on our behalf really is. So Abraham's covenant is about 2000 BC. God promises four things, land, people, relationship, and a mission, that a blessing will come. That's the main covenant. That's the foundation of the house. But before Abraham's covenant, we had Noah's covenant. Now remember Noah's story, God would see incredible wickedness in creation. So God would send a flood. And when God sends a flood, God destroys, basically we have a restart, but people are still the same people with heart, sin, and so forth. And God gets out and God tells Noah, uh, makes a covenant with Noah. Now, when we think of Noah's story, we think of, man, this is just a cool story, Sunday school story, romantic pairs of animals, cute and all, entering the ark, and we have this rainbow at the end. But this story is foundational. This covenant is the reason why you can predict that summer's coming, that you can go and watch the sunrise. We have seasons because this covenant would be the preservation of life. God has vowed. And by the way, God made this covenant not just with the people. He made this with creatures. And this covenant would actually have no condition for human beings. It's just God says, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to preserve life. Life will be abundant. This is why there's fish in the oceans and so forth. And God makes this covenant. It maybe could be seen as common grace covenant to bless earth as is. And then God, a few years later, elects Abraham. He tells him this covenant. Then God would, um, here's the thing. When Abraham died, did God fulfill any of these plans, promises? When Abraham died, there was a nation of a whopping three individuals. Abraham Isaac and Rebekah, no nation. He was in a land that was foreign. And certainly, he did have a relationship which was beautiful, but certainly, the nations were not yet blessed. So God, let's move 500 years forward, and God multiplies the people of Israel, but they're in Egypt. And they're in Egypt, slaving away, So God raises up our favorite guy, we were just talking about Moses, to deliver the people after about 400 years. And so Moses goes and he deals with Pharaoh, and there's a long story short. He redeems, delivers the people, or God through Moses, the people from bondage, and they start to travel back to the promised land. They're in Egypt. Their land is supposed to be the land of Canaan. That's their promised land. So that's where the story takes us. 
And as they're traveling, three months later, as they leave Egypt, they come to this mountain, Mount Sinai. And God would make a third covenant with creation. Now, in this covenant, what we do see is that God partially fulfills the covenant he made with Abraham. There's a measure of fulfillment. What is that? There is now a nation, millions of people. And God makes a covenant with this nation, so he fulfills partially the covenant of Abraham. God also reaffirms a relationship with the people. In fact, I'm going to read this right now in Exodus 19, this covenant that God makes. He says, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. God is reaffirming. God is fulfilling the people part. God is reaffirming the relationship part. But God would also in this covenant give the people of Israel the law. Ten commandments, the sacrificial system, all sorts of measurements, how Levites are supposed to worship God, a whole lot of laws. Now, that's the development part of the covenant. So God fulfills. God is in continuance with Abraham's covenant, but he adds on this law. Now, why do we have the law? Now, we have to think this question very seriously because the law gets a lot of bad rap, bad rap in Christian circles. The first reason God gives this law to Israelites is because the law is good. It's a delight. There's a lot of blessing in the law. And when we sometimes are negative towards the rules of God in the Old Testament, the question I often want to ask is, is it the law you have a problem with or the way people misinterpreted the law? Because oftentimes it's not the law that's the problem, it's the way human beings took it and figured it out and applied it to their lives. Jesus said this much when he says, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Teachers of his day flip the script. See, the law is wisdom and understanding. Law is a delight to obey God. He puts out his qualities in the law. Like that's who God is. That's what makes, we understand how holy God is by reading the law. The second reason that God gives us the law is because it becomes a mirror to our inadequacy. We get to see just how much, let me put it nicely, Jesus we need. We fail, we flunk, we flop, we betray, we lie, we steal. Come on, right? Kinda. But beautiful thing about the law is God would also make a provision with a sacrificial system so that they would not be destroyed. And what we see in the sacrificial system is that every sin must be paid with blood. And yet that sacrificial system that we had or that Israelites had was insufficient to deal with sin. It would be a symbolic way of covering sin. 
it would never deal with the root problem of sin. And the way it would work is you brought an animal, basically, to the temple. You confessed your sins over the, te- over the animal. The, ta- the animal was butchered, killed. Some of the animal probably went to the Levites. Some of it was burnt. Some of the blood was applied on the mercy seat. And basically, you had covering for your sin, but it was never dealt with. But, now here's the exciting part about this law, is that the sacrificial system answers the question of just exactly how we are to share in the blessings of God. It's going to take some sort of sacrifice. I don't know what it is. (laughs) It's going to take some sort of sacrifice to clean us up with our sin. So first, it's good. Second, it's a mirror, but also shows us the need for a sacrifice. Third, it would be for the sake of nations. That's the mission part. The reason God gives the law, we read in Deuteronomy 4, is keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statues, will say, surely this great, excuse me, surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? The law had a missional aspect. It was ultimately to show God's holiness. It was really about the nations all along. So is God faithful? We got three covenants in. Is God going to really do this? Is he going to bring about some salvation? Well, the law in a big way provides for a way to deal with sin. It's foreshadowing. Then after the Mount Sinai covenant, about 500 years later, Israelites make their journey after all to the land of Canaan. They establish the kingdom. They take back the lands. There's a whole lot of story that I'm not sharing here. And finally, we have David, a king. The thing about David is that David, for the first time ever, really fulfilled that second piece of Abrahamic covenant. He provided land, land that now had rest from enemies. So not only do we have a nation, we have now land. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we also read that now God in this covenant was going to do something wild. He promised a son. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who is God talking about here? He's talking about David's child, some child that's going to come in his lineage that's going to establish his rule forever. And this is key. The reason this is key is because we narrow down the field who this offspring, who's going to have the blessing for the nations will be. It's going to be some sort of king. But not only that, we also see that this king is not going to be an ordinary king. He will be a king who will rule forever. Clearly, human beings fall and sin and die, and and yet there's going to be a king who will establish a throne forever that is pointing to the divinity of Jesus. 
This king will have to be forever, ruling forever. Now, we are eternal, but we don't rule forever. Some presidents on earth are ruling, but they don't rule forever. He would be ruling forever. Clearly, this is not an ordinary person. He comes from his body. He's ordinary, human, and he's extraordinary. He's going to live forever. Now, this son would be the one in whom the blessing would be. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the son. May people be blessed in him, that him is the son of David. And all nations call him blessed. So we have narrowed the field of who this person that God promised to Abraham, his offspring would be. It's going to be a king in David's lineage. And he will have the blessing. So let's summarize real quick. I know, you guys, this is a big, hefty meal. Mount Sinai, God really gives, continues the law. Excuse me, continues his promises to Abraham and promises a provision through a sacrificial system to cover sin. Then God gives a covenant to David, fulfills some of the promises to Abraham, but really the whole point is, is it gives us who this person is going to be who's going to bring about salvation for the nations. And the last covenant we have, forward 500 years, is the new covenant. Uh, I want to tell you that the story is pretty disappointing at this point. In fact, God promises David this forever kingdom and his grandson, Solomon's child, will already ruin it. The kingdom of Israel, 12 tribes, would split into two. And then the top northern tribes would be taken to captivity and dispersed because of Assyria and empire. Well, we still have two tribes, Judah and Jerusalem, would be called Judah. They too would be captured in 6th century BC, driven away to Babylon. And around this time, Jeremiah and Ezekiel start to talk about a need for a new promise. And this promise would be so sweet because it would deal with the heart problem. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Now remember that word, new covenant, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Church, this is amazing. I will put my law within them. Torah goes on the inside, is internalized. And I will write on their hearts, I will be their God, and they will, shall be my people. That's the relationship that God continues. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And this new covenant was going to promise a new relationship, new obedience, and new forgiveness. But let's go back to our story. The people that came back to Judah around 6th century B.C., late 6th century B.C., was just a few. In fact, between 
5th and 6th century all the way to the coming of Jesus, you really didn't have a nation. You lost the nation. You didn't really have land. You, you were sort of under different empires, Greece and then Rome, first Persia. So you really didn't even have land. You had 400 years of silence. God didn't even speak. And what are we to do with this? You have here God's covenant to Abraham that's not even fulfilled. And now you have Jeremiah and Ezekiel talking about all the new things God is going to do. We don't even have the first things done. And when things look like they're at their darkest, when everything seems to have failed, no land, people scattered, no relationship with God. Not, let's not even talk about blessing for the nations, and let's certainly not talk about the new covenant. Something wild happens. Matthew begins with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You get that? Jesus is born. And Jesus, now check this out, is the son of Abraham and he's the son of David. Now, if, he, if he's the son of David, if he really is, maybe somebody else could have said the same thing about themselves. If he's the son of David, then here's what happens, okay? He's the one who has the blessing. If he's the son of David, he's the one with the blessing for the nations. So how do we know that he's the son of David? Well, Romans 1 tells us, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus walks around with the title son of David. This is a title of divinity, of a kingdom forever, and that he is the one who is the agent and the carrier of the blessing for the nations. Now, that's a big claim. He proves it with his resurrection. He walked out of the grave. So he is the son of David. He's the one who has the blessing. But here is the problem. He's the one, as the son of David, he has the blessing in him. Question, question, how do we get that blessing Okay, Jesus is the one. He's that guy. He's the guy. He's that guy with the blessing. How do we share in that blessing? Jesus also makes a way. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Bingo. Jesus is the blessing of all nations, the undoing of the curse, forgiveness and all that. He has it in him. He's the one we need. How do we get to him? How do we share in him? He also provides the means. He's the provision. He's that sacrifice that the system of sacrifice was pointing to. He forever conquers sin and death. My question to you is, was God faithful? Is God faithful? Did the destination that the Bible sets out 2,000 years prior to Jesus to be a blessing for the nations come true? Here's the world. I just picked a couple of nations. How many people believe in Jesus or have a relationship with Jesus 
in each country. In China, you ready? Now, the blessing was all nations of the earth will be blessed. 104 million. Probably underreported. India, 27 million. Australia, 25 million. I put Papua New Guinea in there. I just had to. Because a cool name, 7 million Christians. Germany, they do have awesome cars, 27 million. Nigeria, 80 million. Ethiopia, 53 million. South Africa, 43 million. Brazil, 185 million. U.S., 210 million. Of course, maybe not all of them are Christian. Statistics are all over the place. But Jesus is the completion of the promise God gave to Abraham 4,000 years ago. Jesus fulfills the promise. In him, and through faith in him, all nations have been blessed. Come on, we could say amen to that. I am going to put some, I'm going to be cheesy. Destination arrived. Yeah, that's amazing. God is a promise keeper. Now, let me ask you this practical question. That's the most important part, that we, God fulfills the promise in Christ to be the blessing for the nations by his death on the cross, being the son of David, the king who establishes the throne, uh, his throne forever. My question to you is, if God bends and orchestrates history to achieve his promise, are there any promises in your daily life that you don't trust God with? You can trust God. He's a promise keeper. He fulfills what he said he will do. And so today I want to say, if you're worried, if you're anxious, if there are things that are unresolved in your life, God is a promise keeper. If you are weighed down by shame and guilt of your sin, the forgiveness of sin, is, uh, forgiveness of sin on the cross is a sure one. Your guilt is removed. God is orchestrating everything in your life for good. If he fulfilled this promise, he fulfills every promise in your life. You can count on it. My other question for you is, do you trust God? That's the first question. Do you trust God? He's a promise keeper. My second question for you today is, do you know him? Do you know the kind of God he is? If this story happened, it did, what does it teach us about God? I want to just go back a few slides. What does this teach us about God? Because this history is a history of failure. This history is a history of us not keeping our, our end of the deal. This history is a history of our hearts rebelling against God. And what does this teach us about God? It teaches that while we are unfaithful, God is unwavering in his commitment to bring salvation about. That while we are faithless, he is faithful. Listen, this story tells us something about God so, I mean, so beautifully, that this is who he is. He's a God of all grace. I don't know about you, but probably people know you very well, the people who know you pretty well, know that there's 
things that you do that are just characteristic of you. They just say, oh, it's so Mark, it's so Reuven. It's just, this is who they are. I, one of my biggest problems is um, in my life, I never lock my car. I have a habit of just leaving my keys in for the night. Just who I am. I really believe in our neighborhoods and people minding their own business. Um, now, t- you're like probably thinking, what's wrong with this guy? He's just awful. Like, he needs to get a reality check. Doesn't he know crime is on the rise? You're shocked. I usually don't even lock my car. And that's, you're like, what? Now, Albina is not shocked by that. Sh- she's annoyed. And she begs me to stop and remember to lock my car. But she's not lo- uh, shocked by this. You know why? To her, that's so Eugene. That's who he is. That's a negative example. Do you know when we read this story of these covenants and God's faithfulness and God's unwavering commitment despite all of our sin, do you know what the main characteristic of God is? He's the God of grace. He's always been the God of grace. There's an image of God that says in the Old Testament, God is a God who is mean, and in the New Testament, I mean, finally, we get to the New Testament, God is actually kind. No. He's been always the God of grace. And I want you to know that today, no matter where you really are, and no matter how wrapped up you may be in shame and guilt, you are not outside of his grace. And if today, if you're killing it in life, you're never in a place where you don't need his grace. It's the grace of God that not only makes those covenants, it's the grace of God that sustains those covenants. And it's not just the grace of God that saves us, it's the grace of God that sustains us to the very end, despite our shortcomings. That's who God is. And then, one more thing I gotta tell you. What about the new covenant? Jesus said these incredible, incredible words. If we could get keys and we'll be singing a song to praise God for this. In Luke 22, verse 20, let me make my way there. Jesus took the cup, instituting the communion, he says, this cup that is poured out, speaking of his sacrifice, for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is the completion of the old covenant And he is the beginner and the source and the inaugurator of the new covenant. In Christ, that five covenants that we saw, all of those promises are yes and amen. Your forgiveness for sins. Uh, In Christ, we have new birth. In Christ, we have a relationship with God that, where we can come into his presence with boldness. In Christ, we are sons and daughters. In Christ, we have the spirit of God. In Christ, we have every blessing. Jesus is the one who does it all. See, scripture is all about him. And we should never read the Bible in any other way. It points us to him. The covenants point us to him. And we arrived at Jesus, the blessing of the nations. So I wanna practically call you to a few responses. Number one, is Jesus your king? Have you surrendered to Jesus? 
Have you made him or at least come under him as the Lord? We don't make him, by the way. Have you come under him as the Lord of your life? Guys, this is it. This is what it's about. My second question to you is, is there anything that you struggle trusting God in today? Well, we're going to pray about this. Because you have every reason to stand firm on every promise of God. If he did that, if he makes a promise 4,000 years ago to Abraham and brings it about in the most mysterious, beautiful way, surely every promise he has made for the daily life that you live is true and fulfilled, will be fulfilled. If you want to have a part in this blessing, you might say, Gene, that's awesome. Nation's blessed, but I'm not blessed. That can change today. You can put your faith, trust in Jesus. It's a prayer. It's coming to him and saying, God, forgive me. God, I trust you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that you were raised to life and now seated on the throne. I want that prayer for you so much. God is so beautiful. Let me pray for you. Jesus, to say the very, very least, you are a promise keeper. But that doesn't say much about the size of this promise because the size of this promise is eternal in significance. And God, when you elected Abraham, you had us in mind. So, Lord, I thank you so much for your providence and your plan bringing about salvation for our lives. Lord, I thank you that with each covenant you fulfilled, you developed, you ultimately reaffirmed, and today we are saved. Lord, I pray right now for anyone here who doesn't believe in you that you would draw their hearts to yourself. Lord, I also pray that you would help us trust you. You are worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We thank you in your name we pray. Amen. Mercy, it is going to be an honor and an absolute privilege to sing praise to this Lamb.